I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thank you for being here, whether it's your first time or whether you've been here for quite some time. Today's conversation is definitely a part two to the last podcast I posted, episode 91. It's not required that you listen to the last one in order to hear this one, but I do think they work very well together, and I plan to have these conversations in conjunction with one another. I think they offer two very interesting perspectives on a topic that um, I really enjoy thinking about and talking about, and a topic that's certainly very prominent in our world right now, that of gender. Um, and I think what I really would hope, or what I really hope to bring to this podcast and to the discussion overall is just as many different perspectives as possible, because I think until we fully confront and understand and accept the nuances and complexity of this issue and so many others, uh, we can't really more move forward truthfully if we only have a very limited viewpoint. So the reason I'm encouraging of, t of uh, listening to the podcast before this one is because it's yet another perspective, right? Uh, in the in the effort to bring nuance to the discussion, I too need to be nuanced in uh, my perspectives and those that I uh, share on the podcast. So while these are definitely maybe along the same lines, uh, Rachel was actually in Vaishnavi's film, Dysphoric. Um, so of course there are some similarities there, but uh, very different perspectives as far as who these people are and um, what sort of narrative and experience they bring to the discussion. So highly recommend going back and listening to, it's not really last week, I think I released it on Sunday or Monday, uh, that episode, episode 91, and then of course listening to today's conversation as well. I'm not going to talk too much on this introduction um, because I'm sitting in a very hot van near grass grass city california it's like a hundred degrees this is the definitely one of the um less glamorous parts of van life the like trying to get life done when you don't really have a house and sitting in a sweaty car with the windows closed because you need it to be quiet to record your introduction so that you can run back into town and upload it it's not all it's not all what it seems like on the interwebs it's funny, someone actually sent me an article recently that was basically that. Like, van life isn't all it's cracked up to be. It actually looks like a bunch of Walmart parking lots and trouble finding a place to sleep uh, and a place to shit, which is kind of true sometimes. You definitely need to know, like, where to go and what to do in order for it to sort of mimic the ideal that you have in mind. And there's not that many places where it happens. Uh, 
it's actually worth mentioning because so many people ask or request that we come out to the Midwest or to the East Coast or to the South. Um, and of course, we've not explored everywhere, so I'm sure there are some exceptions. But generally speaking, it seems that most places are not as amenable to van campers as others. So in California, for example, where we are now, every possible pull-off, you know, dirt roads that go off the main road are littered with no parking signs, no access, private property, blah, 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 blah. Um, and yet when we go to places like Idaho and Montana, not only is there so much up in open space and far fewer people, but they're just more amenable to camping. So there's fire plate, you know, fire pits set up and people camp there all the time and you don't have to pay and you're by a river. Uh, whereas when you get into places like Texas or there's no public land, it's extremely difficult to camp anywhere, um, except if you find a regular campground. But those are often so booked up so far in advance and often not really that great. It's just like a patch of land in the middle of the woods with no view. Um, and those things are so much uh, so reserved in so far in advance, which is also something we can't really do because we don't really know where we're going to be. So for those of you that are in places that are not the West and don't understand why we're never coming to visit you guys or having meetups up there, it's because it's just very difficult to do. Um, there's also the piece about the fact that the West is gorgeous and beautiful. Uh, I know there are beautiful places elsewhere, but that's a big part of it. And, you know, driving through some of these states like Texas and just like the middle part of the country um, where there isn't much to do or much to see. Um yeah, it's just not as appealing, but it sucks because we definitely want to see all of you in all places of the world. So hopefully maybe we can do that at some point. We'll we'll reach out to all of you and, and have you guys um, offer up your property so that we know we have a place to stay and maybe schedule things ahead of time. I don't know. That's probably a false promise. Um, speaking of meetups, we were going to try to do a meetup here where we are now in Grass Valley sometime over the weekend. I think we're likely going to skip that Um one, because it's been difficult to find places to camp around Grass Valley. Some of the people that had reached out to us that have property out here are actually unavailable this weekend, and it's 100 degrees. So I think we're going to just go out into the Sierras and unfortunately skip the meetup in this part of the world. Um, so apologies if you were hoping to uh, come to that. Hopefully next year we can make it work. Um, what else do I have to say? Not much. I think I'm going to keep it short. I've had a very wild, uh, time over the past 48 hours. I was reunited with a sort of long lost family member and, um, found all these ways that my new life kind of, uh, inter is interwoven with my old life, which I guess is not exactly what I mean, but places that my uh, grandparents were and that, you know, my family has spent time for a while actually the same house. Like I just found out that the house I was sitting in recently was a house that my grandmother and my grandfather had a meal in. So it's very strange. I feel like my ancestors are taking me places in my current life without me even knowing it. Um, I've just been coming across stories about people that have known uh, my family in very strange ways. So hopefully I get to elaborate that on that at some point. Um, but mostly today, I would just like to get into this conversation and get out of this sweaty van. So without further ado, um, please uh, enjoy this conversation with Rachel. Uh, I think it was a very extremely brave and courageous conversation for her to have. Uh, not that she hasn't done it before. 
Um, she is very vo vocal on her Twitter and uh, in Dysphoric, the film that Vashnavi made that we spoke about last time on the podcast. Uh, but I just really, I'm really impressed by those who make the decision to speak out about things that are very difficult to speak out about in a climate that is the opposite of, you know, hospitable and kind about these sorts of conversations and perspectives. Um, so yeah, I hope you appreciate this conversation. I hope it expands your mind. I'm sure some of it will be challenging and difficult to listen to. Um, but I think it's important that we listen to those types of things. I think it's important that we get triggered and reject the idea of safe spaces and really move toward our triggers and our discomforts in a way that helps us expand our own perspectives and our knowledge about ourselves and the world. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do that by sharing an episode with a friend, email, um, telling them in person. You can share episodes on social media and tag me or the podcast handle at mgswpod on Instagram. Um, and if you would like, if you have some extra change, a few dollars to spare each month, and you would like to help support the podcast financially to keep it ad free, if this is a uh, information that you find valuable and you've been here for a while, or if you're new and you would just really like to keep this podcast going. Um, again, I hope to never have ads on the podcast. There is no other way to support this podcast uh, financially aside from through your donations. So I really, really, really do rely on them and appreciate them tremendously. Um, if you have, so if you have a few extra dollars to spare and you'd also like to get access to the perks that I offer, such as a private discord server for patrons only, we do a book club, we have workshops, that are taught for just patrons, playlists, uh, contact list. Uh, I always forget at least one perk every time I discuss this. <laughs> um, but there are lots of perks and you can find all that information on patreon.com slash Anya Kotz, A-N-Y-A-K-A-A-T-S. If you ever have a question or a comment on anything that I discuss or this podcast overall or Patreon, please do not hesitate to reach out to me, whether it's on Instagram at Anya.Kotz or email AnyaKotz at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys about all the things. Um, sorry to miss y'all in Grass Valley. If you were planning on coming to the meetup, again, hope we can make that work next time. If you would like to keep an eye on where we are planning to do meetups, hopefully we won't need to skip any other ones. You can go to AnyaKotz.com slash podcast dash meetups and you'll see the list of places we're going to go if you have a place to suggest near any of those areas please send us an email 81131podcast at gmail.com we're hoping to do all of these kind of in a covid friendly outdoor kind of a way so if you have like a cool patch of land that you live on and you want to offer it up and you live in one of the areas on the list let us know we'd love to hear from you um, I'm going to play you in today with a song called Save Me by Blue, but it's spelled in the French way, so it's B-L-E-U. Uh, I was a huge fan of Blue, man, so many years ago, really when I was probably 16, 17. I remember vividly listening to Blue when I was traveling in a van for the first time in my life when I was in a band. Little little known fact about me, it's how I fell in love with van life, was sitting in a sitting in some sort of like half broken down van with no air conditioning and a bunch of sweaty boys in a band. Uh, but I loved it. So I don't know what that says about me. Um, but I used to listen to blue all the time. Yeah. So it always reminds me of that period of time in my life. And I think it definitely relates to the conversation that you're about to hear. So enjoy and I will catch you on the other end. 
been a long, long time since I really laughed. I guess you had to be there. It wasn't funny when all the money dried and fell like leaves on the breeze of a fallen pride. A slippery slide of little lies. Somebody ought to put me down. Rachel, um, I have to say this, this conversation might be like, probably is in like the top five <laughs> most exciting conversations I've had on the podcast. Um, and I, <laughs> which is strange given the topic that we're going to discuss, but I feel like, like I mentioned before we started, this podcast, uh, was really created. I feel like to have conversations that are not occurring in the public realm very frequently. Um, and it took me a while to sort of 
figure out how I wanted to have this conversation. And it sort of started with a theory for me. I did a, uh, I did a podcast with someone else. It was like a conversation. And in my introduction, I started talking about how appreciative I was of strong women. And then I went on to sort of go on this rant of like, it's such a weird time in our world where saying like, I'm so appreciative of my strong woman friends almost seems politically incorrect at this point. Like, mm-hmm. I have to specify, like, gender and bodies and this and that. Um, anyway, and I had this sort of theory about it. I was just sort of, like, totally off the cuffs. Like, is there any part of at least the female-to-male transgender movement that has to do with misogyny? Um, and I sort of just posed the question, and I... I hadn't done my own research, like, I just had a feeling, and then after that, I got a lot of, not from my audience, but from the guest audience, were, like, not super happy with my introduction to this podcast, Um, and I went on YouTube just, like, to see what was there, and what I found were so many videos basically saying that a lot of detransitioned women who are talking about how so much of their transition was fueled by some version of misogyny. Of course, everyone's story was different, but I was actually taken aback by how much of that was there. Um, And sort of taken aback by how little of that we were all hearing in the public realm, right? It was all this like sort of private YouTube space area. So that led me to uh, find... uh, is it dysphoric? Yeah. Mm. Um, that you were interviewed in. And, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I really wanted to have a conversation with someone who had been through this and I thought you spoke really eloquently and intelligently about your experience in that film. Um, and so I'm really grateful to have you on the podcast today. So I know this is not an easy conversation to have. And, uh, yeah, I think you're very brave and courageous for, for coming out and speaking. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Um, so I guess where to begin, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Um, I know it's a sort of difficult story to tell, um, but sort of speak a little bit about how you came to the decision to trend to transition in the first place. Um, and what, uh, what you were experiencing both personally and sort of in the world at large that sort of made you have this idea of hmm, maybe transitioning is the answer. Yeah. Um, there, there were a lot of factors that intertwined for me, just like with any detransitioner story you'll hear, there's always like more than one thing that we can boil it down to. Right. So, um, like if we go to the way back, the early times, like I experienced a lot of sexual abuse as a child and my upbringing was very controlled for gender roles. Uh, so women, um, in the culture that I grew up in were meant to be homemakers, were meant to wear you know, modest clothing that covered our skin, preferably like dresses and skirts. Uh, And women were not really brought up with the idea that they could enter the workplace or be individuals even. So already kind of off to a bad start. And then as I'm growing up, I realize, oh, crap, I'm a lesbian, (laughs) Um which was, uh, my, my upbringing was very religious and very homophobic at the same time. So that was not I, an ideal situation for me. 
And I struggled a lot with my sexual orientation. I tried very, very hard to uh, be heterosexual and maintain heterosexual relationships. And so I struggled a lot with that. And then in my late teens, I started to um, kind of come out more as bisexual and have more relationships with women. But all the while dealing with this internal feeling of disgust and uh, the homophobia that I had grown up with was all just pent up inside of me. And while I didn't project that onto other people, it very much was a standard that I held for myself of, I can't, I, I can't live this way. I can't possibly be a lesbian. I can't do it. And um, so I, I was trying to kind of break free of these thoughts when I was a, a late teen. And once I hit my early 20s, uh, I, I started really branching out and having relationships with women. And I went on this blind date with a woman that I met um, through some friends online. And it turned out that she was a trans woman. And uh, for all intents and purposes, I'm going to use she and her pronouns for this person out of respect. Um, but, uh, she did not tell me she was trans at first and we started getting to know each other. And then she finally divulged that information to me. And I told her I wasn't comfortable with that. And she really laid into me. <laughs> um, she, she really, she said, you know, you are a fetishist. You aren't really a lesbian if you're not willing to date trans women and she she basically said, like, you need to really work on your own gender issues and figure out your gender stuff before you can lay down these boundaries with me. And I didn't know how to take that. I was I was naive. I, I had had no encounter before with transgender people personally. Um, my exposure, I, I wasn't really involved online, so I really didn't have any exposure to the culture or anything like that. So this was brand new to me and it took me off guard. So, and your discomfort was not about the idea of trans, but more about the fact that you were like, I'm attracted to women, <laughs> yes. women, women. Yeah. Okay. Um, so once you, uh, had this encounter with her, um, and we're sort of <laughs> shamed for your, I don't know, l lack of acceptance or inclusivity. Um, what what happened after that? What was your sort of journey with learning more about these these issues? So she and I, we came to an impasse and decided to remain friends, but kind of kept our distance a bit. Um, she was very upset that I would not sleep with her. <laughs> um, <laughs> took it very personally, which I was like, well, why do you want to sleep with somebody who doesn't find you attractive? Right. But <laughs> right. um, either way, uh, we, we kind of kept our distance. And then I separately, uh, I moved, um, I made new friends. And in this process, I started to sort of do my own research because I was like, well, you know, I, I'm curious, what, what is this transgender thing all about? So I started watching videos on YouTube, 
and getting involved in some Reddit groups and talking with people. And then that's when I really started to encounter people who were female to male transsexual. Uh, we used the word transsexual at the time. Mm. And um, so I, I started having conversations with them and I was having... I reached out to them personally, so it wasn't. I, I wasn't really satisfied with just hearing their story on YouTube and taking all of that in. I would reach out to them personally, and we'd have like a one-on-one -on -one dialogue. And I, through that, I found out that we had very similar histories. A lot of them mm -hmm. had encountered lots of um, childhood abuse, very gendered upbringing, um, or rigid gendered upbringing. And a lot of them had also had history of mental illness, which I do, history of eating disorder, which I do. All these, all these boxes kept checking. And, but in conversation with them, they would tell me, you know, transition was the best choice I've made. Um, it's really made me more comfortable with my body and it's made me more comfortable being out in the world. I don't feel like I get harassed the same I, as I got harassed when I presented as a woman um, and things like that. And that was really enticing to me because I'd encountered so much just out in the world harassment, you know, and so many instances of um, male violence and issues like that, that I was like eager to escape that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking before we started talking how interesting it is that we're super comfortable talking about like misogyny in certain realms, like the pay gap or like in the Me Too movement. But it seems like there's a block when we think about, okay, like it is still difficult. You know, we might think otherwise, but in many ways, like a lot of women, especially like you who are raised in these very traditional, rigid gender role type of environments, that it's still very difficult for women to exist in the world. And so why wouldn't we think that maybe some of those women would opt to not be women anymore? Mm -hmm. Like, like, why is there that, <laughs> that blockage, you know? Well, yeah, if you've suddenly been given this option to be regarded, you know, relatively as a male and have all that goes with it, you know, sure, there's going to be struggle involved uh, with that process that you learn more about as you go through the, the process of transition. But just hearing it, just the, the minor descriptions that you hear about it, it sounds great. Yeah. So, so you sort of felt a kinship with these other people who had transitioned. Um, but just to be clear, before this, you know, you talked about like, I, I'd love to sort of hear about the your relationship with your body prior to this as well, because I think there's, I don't know, I feel like there's two camps. There's some people, especially younger, um, younger kids, who I feel like the sign that you're transgender is that you feel like you're in the wrong body, right? Like you have this dysphoria. Um, did you have any of that before, aside from the, like, was that, did you ever feel like a weird gendered problem in your body or were the body issues more like you said around like the eating disorder and just sort of like discomfort in general? Um, I, so the thing is, I honestly don't believe that I actually had gender dysphoria going in. I think I sort of manifested it. Um, mm -hmm. the more that I surrounded myself with people who are like talking about it, it's, it's a little hard to explain, but it's, it's when you focus all of your attention 
on a body part that everyone else is talking about being uncomfortable with, you start to think, oh, yeah, I guess I'm probably pretty uncomfortable with that, too. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and the discussions would be like, you know, uh, I have a lot of discomfort around getting a pap smear. Well, yeah, like so do I. (laughs) It's not, it's not pleasant. And um, surprisingly, it's not pleasant for most women. Um, (laughs) uh, So, you know, things like that and talking about it all the time um, really focused all, like I said, focused all that attention on it. And that's sort of what brought up the, the anxiety around my body for me in like specification to my sex. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, I'd had a lot of issues around my body in general of I wasn't comfortable having sex with men. Um, and so I sort of interpreted that as there's something wrong with me. And I also was uncomfortable being seen as a woman. So I was uncomfortable with my breasts because they indicated to others, treat her this way. Mm. Um as opposed to I'm uncomfortable with my breasts because they feel like they shouldn't be there. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to think about. I've, I was always very, I think more masculine than most girls growing up and, um, had a really hard time like fitting into, and I wasn't raised in traditional gender roles. In fact, my dad is gay. I like met transgender people before it was like a super popular thing. Um, And so I think I had a fair bit of nuance as it related to, like, who you could be. and But even still, um, and and a lot of it was subconscious, but I just didn't get it. I didn't want to wear the clothes. I didn't know how to fit in. And I, it really didn't sort of fix itself or start to, I didn't start to figure it out until after I hit puberty. And I wonder, had this gender stuff been as popular then as it is now, that I probably would have very likely thought similar things that like, oh, of course, you know, like, I don't want to wear those clothes. I'm transgender. Um, So it seems like for you, unless until you were given the information, until you were exposed, you would have never thought that this was you. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, a factor for me, at least, that I have seen reflected in other detransitioners lives is, um, that I wasn't exposed to butch lesbians. I wasn't exposed to that, mm. that part of life. So knowing, um, if, if, if I had known at the time that that was an option to be butch or even androgynous and still remain a woman, I would have seen things very differently because I entered into the transgender, community with the idea of woman is hyper feminine. And they confirmed that with me. And they said, if you prefer to dress androgynous, if you prefer to not wear heels, as an example, then you're very likely transgender because you're going against the norm. Which is so ironic, right? Like this was part of what I was talking about in my introduction, that podcast I mentioned, because to me, like, if we just take a step back, like, is not, isn't the goal that we're all working toward is to expand the definition of gender, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like a very strange thing that the movement that wishes to expand the, the definition of gender, in my mind, is often reinforcing the gender norm, right? Like, so if you're not this very, you know, dic- dic- uh, dictionary definition of a woman, like you said, with the high heels and the this and the that, 
then you're not a woman. And it's like, okay, but wait a second, where are the, where is the room? Like, where will the lesbians go? Like, that's, yep. you know, <laughs> um, go ahead. Well, it's so interesting too, because when you're like as deep seated into the community and involved as I am and have been, mm-hmm. you also see this, this interesting thing happen where men don't have to physically transition in order to announce themselves as women. They don't really have to change their appearance or do anything like that. But women, on the other hand, as soon as they start dressing differently, they are prescribed and told by their people, oh, you're at least non-binary. Right. You know, so it's like you, the standards are still there. The sexism is still there. Um, where we're expanding the definition for men, we're allowing them to say, you know, I want to wear nail polish and makeup and stuff, but I can be a man, I can be a woman, I can be whatever I say I am. But for a woman, it's still very much, you know, either you are a woman and you dress a very feminine way, or you have to be non-binary or female to male trans. Right. So let's, I want to talk a little bit about your experience deciding this was you, this was the answer, this is what you wanted to do. What was that process like in terms of um, going to see a therapist? I imagine, like, what was that whole, how did that all work? Oh, man. So <laughs> um, I, I, I've gotten in trouble uh, with talking about this before because I always get the trans people saying, you know, it's not that easy. Why are you saying it's so easy? It was so easy for me (laughs) uh, to go on cross-sex hormones. It's ridiculous. Um, So I, and and of course it's not that way for everybody, but definitely in the state I was in, it was easy. Um, So I uh, saw a therapist and um, she was specifically a gender therapist. So she specifically worked with um, teens and young adults who were questioning their gender. And um, she and I saw each other for um, a couple of weeks. And then, um, and and right from the get-go, she was very much um, affirming my beliefs. So I went in saying, you know, I think that I'm transgender. Um, he, you know, I've always played with boy dolls or boy toys, not dolls. And like, I, I always prefer to dress this way. And, um, you know, I have these personality traits, which is all they are. They're just personality traits, which anyone can have. But I, you know, had been told, you know, those define your gender. So I went in and I told her all of this. She said, yeah, I think you're right. You know, I think you're probably transgender. Uh, and there was no criticism. There was no critical thinking, which I feel like is a tough place to be in as a therapist, but you do have to have a bit of a backbone. You do have to draw the line in the sand and be a bit more of a guide to the person coming in because coming in again, I had a history of mental illness that was documented. I was clearly a vulnerable adult. I was dealing with my sexual orientation. I was dealing with past trauma. Um, all these things should have been addressed and they weren't addressed. Um, instead, right from the get go, yep, you're definitely transgender. Uh, and she basically instructed me on how the process works and how we can go through with getting me medicated. And it really was just a funnel system into the world of medication and surgery. So, um, 
I saw her for a couple of weeks and then she said, here, uh, we can write up this document that says that you've been seeing me for six months, even though you haven't been. And uh, that will legally allow the doctor to prescribe you hormones. So that's what we did. So insane. How old were you, by the way, at this point? At this point, I was uh, 21, I think, 21 Mm. or 22. So let's talk about this, the mental health piece of this, um, because I think that's, which has talked a lot about uh, this in, in dysphoric and sort of where I sort of see it as well, you know, that that gender dysphoria is or could be a symptom of much larger mental health issues, right? That, that the gender issue is not the issue, but that it's a symptom of the greater issue, Um I'd like to hear what you have to say about that if you agree or what your thoughts are. I 110% agree. Um, I have yet to meet somebody who has been either diagnosed or self-diagnosed with gender dysphoria and also doesn't struggle with mental health issues, be they um, anxiety, uh, or, you know, general depression or something more severe. Um, so I, uh, I haven't talked about this a lot in the past, but I've been recently talking about how actually, um, so I, when I was 17, I was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Mm. Um, more recently I've been diagnosed with a schizoaffective disorder, which is schizophrenia with a combination of a, uh, mood disorder. So typically it's bipolar, uh, in my case, it's major depressive disorder. So, um, I do experience very severe mental illness. Um, and, uh, so in my case, um, I feel like the fact that that was completely ignored, uh, was really detrimental to my longstanding health because even if gender dysphoria was a reality for me, and even if transitioning would have eased that part of my mental illness, I still have all of these other mental health issues that I need right. addressed. Right. And did the therapist ask you, or like, was that a part of this gender therapy at all, the mental health issues, or even the underlying trauma, right, that you experienced as well when you were younger? Like, was that brought into it at all? Um, we, I would say we discussed um, the trauma a little bit more than other mental health issues. Um, so she was definitely made aware of my diagnosis and my mental illness, but, um, we did, we did focus some on the trauma and, um, but at the time she wasn't practicing, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, she wasn't really practicing any, um, DBT or anything like that. So it really was just talk therapy, um, which can be beneficial, but she really wasn't trained in dealing with trauma or PTSD or anything like that. So um, it was sort of, you know, talk talk about this instance that um, you experienced trauma, you know, uh, and so we, I would basically vent to her and talk to her about an instance. Um, we do a little recap. She'd be like, okay, are you in a good place now? All right, off you go. Wow. Um, so she lied and said you'd been seeing her for six months. You were able to, um, get hormones. Uh, what was that process like? Did you feel instantly better? Did you feel, um, did it take a while? Like what were it, what was going through your head? So, uh, I saw the doctor once and then, um, she did a 
general physical, um, did some blood work, uh, which I, I have a whole thing about doing blood work because I ended up having later to push and push to get blood work done. It's not mm. covered very much under insurance, um, general insurance policies, especially if you're under state insurance. Um, but it's something that you actually need to be getting done like every six months. Um, but usually insurance will only cover it like once or twice a year. Um, and most people who are trans won't even get it done that many times. Mm. <clears throat> and, um, so anyway, um, so I went in, got the blood work done and got my physical. The next time I saw her, she gave me the, the cross sex hormones. She gave me the testosterone. She started me on a very high dose, um, because we, we talked about results and I, was of course in this state where I, I didn't know the medical side whatsoever. I just knew like, I want results now. Mm. She was like, all right, let's give it to you. She went over, um, possible side effects. And the ones that she went over were, you're, you know, going to experience balding. You're going to experience facial hair. You might experience more acne. You might experience some more mood swings. Your metabolism's going to change. You might lose or gain weight. Um, and that was pretty much it. She did not go over the fact that there is a higher risk of stroke. There is a higher risk of heart condition um, that you actually, uh, they are finding out now that there is possibly a link to PCOS um, developing. Um, you can develop thyroid issues. Um, there's even possible links to cancer. Um, all these things were not mentioned <laughs> yeah. um, because it, it really is very much an experimental drug. Um you know they can't uh, they can't really verify all of the variety of factors that each individual has, let alone um, standard use is different person to person. You might get a different prescription than this person and that person. So um, it's I think a, a real minefield for doctors to be prescribing this drug um, willy nilly without going over. Here are the absolute, you know, even if you have a one in a million chance, like I think they need to be giving out all this information and I didn't get that info. Yeah. And I, I think like all of this is experimental, the hormones, the surgery, like it's all treated in that respect because it's so new, which I think then leads to like a lot less protection for those who have been harmed through these types of therapies. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 Um, and I assume there was also no talk of the permanent changes. Like if you were to decide this wasn't what you wanted to do, um, I'm sure that was never mentioned. <laughs> I was told other than hair loss that it would all be reversible. Mm. Yeah. Which is a lie. <laughs> right. <laughs> so how, how long did you take hormones for? I took hormones for about five and a half years. Okay. And during that process, I think I was reading a bit on your Twitter, there was something also about like you feeling sort of addicted to the testosterone, like what in taking those drugs, did you feel like it was helping you and allowing you to become who you were? Did you sort of constantly feel like once I do this, I'll feel better. And once I do this and once I do this, the sort of like never ending <laughs> consumption of like fix me kind of a feeling. Well, I experienced what what we tend to call gender euphoria. Um, 
for the first like maybe month, month and a half after taking testosterone where mm-hmm. you feel like you've got the holy grail. You've got all the answers to your problems. And that's really how it's marketed is right. that this is going to fix you. It's going to fix all of your mental health problems. It's going to make it easier for you to walk in the world. This is, you know, absolutely all that you need. But um, once I started testosterone, my doctor pressured me a lot to then pursue surgery. Um, I had initially no interest in getting a double mastectomy. Um, I'd had some interest in um, sex reassignment surgery, but given that that is still so tricky and so experimental, I was really hesitant about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so my doctor at one point stopped refilling my testosterone because she said, you need to go and get a surgery consultation for a double mastectomy so that I can take you seriously. Because she said, this is is the path that you need to be on, is to get a a, bilateral mastectomy and then, you know, hopefully also get a hysterectomy at least. Um, she said, this is what you need to do. And I was like, why do I, I I didn't sign up to instantly get surgery. That was not the plan. Um, and it was, it was financially out of reach too. So even if I had wanted it, I couldn't afford it. Um, so I ended up going and getting a surgery consultation. I basically told the surgeon, I'm absolutely not interested in this. Um, and he said, okay, well, you know, if you ever are, this is the procedure we'll use. And, um, you know, come on back and see me. So how is this similar to like any sort of medical industrial complex pushing medication? Oh, man. <laughs> like, it- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so the, it's really complicated, I think, because for one, we're introducing the medication, which is unless you end up getting, as a female, a hysterectomy, um, you're going to need to be on testosterone pretty much for the rest of your life. Um, and then after a hysterectomy, you're likely still going to need some sort of testosterone. It'll probably be a lot lower dose, um, but you are still going to be reliant upon hormone therapy. Um, and when you, so when I would take my shot, I would feel this instant rush and I would, as it would start to get into my system, I would feel great and I'd feel energized. If I skipped even one dose, I would feel so sick. I would get cramps. I would just feel kind of like, um, if you, if you've ever had a really bad period, um, I, I didn't have menstruation at the time, but I would, I would get those feelings of body aches and feeling lethargic and, nauseous and all of that. So you really do physically become dependent on this stuff. And then um, to top it off, we've got the surgery aspect where you really are pressured by your doctors. You're not told about any of the risks. Um, I've seen firsthand um, friends who had gotten surgery to transition and had infections. And um, I had a friend who ended up in a coma after his uh, sex reassignment surgery. Um, you know, these things are life threatening and we don't talk about that. Yeah. Um, so after the sort of euphoria piece wore off, you were obviously on hormones for quite some time after that. Um, aside from the sort of rush and the addiction, 
did you ever start to question, like, is this really helping? Do I feel like this is who I want to be? And I also imagine that at this time, as far as your, like, social or dating life goes, like, were you friends with other people who were trans? Like, how is the sort of um, surrounding culture, I guess, either affirming or disapproving of your choices? Well, I think it's... um it's really difficult to live as you're transitioning and be separate from the trans community. Mm -hmm. Um, you do tend to engross yourself in it, you know, as far as media and then also your friend group, your dating group, um, even like your employers and, you know, your work environment, you seek out environments and it starts off where you're told those are the only people who are going to be accepting. But then you find yourself in this echo chamber um, and you're surrounded by people who are doing nothing but affirm you. And while they are affirming, they are also pressuring you to continue down this path. So mm -hmm. if you have any question, it's really scary to talk about it with anyone that you have surrounded yourself with. So I, um, I, actually started questioning very early on, I'd say maybe six months in, mm. um, I started questioning things because I started to feel more uncomfortable in my body as my body started changing and my suicidal ideation skyrocketed, which my therapist at the time said, that's perfectly normal somehow. Um, <laughs> she said, uh, yeah, she, she was saying like, it's normal to question. It's normal to feel like this isn't the right choice, but it is, you just have to per persist. Um, which looking back is ridiculous. Um, if yeah. you start to question, it's perfectly healthy and possible to stop and take a minute and rethink your choices. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, so I, I, I started questioning pretty early, but I just kept holding out and I got to a point where I felt like I was beyond the ability to stop. Yeah. And what, what, why did you feel that? What was the beyond your ability piece? Just the, the pressure, the physical changes? Uh, the physical changes definitely played a part. I thought there's no way I can go back to living life as a woman. Now I grow facial hair and my voice has changed. And I felt repulsive because I felt like I wanted to go back to being a woman and I wanted to go back to the body that I'd had before I even started, but I knew that that was impossible. There had been so many changes and I'd been on it for so long. Um, and, but I think what played a bigger factor for me was really the people that I had surrounded myself with, um, who were pretty much all trans mm -hmm. and, um, they, there had been, you know, small mentions here and there about if you stop transitioning, um, in quiet, you can kind of be accepted, but if you actually revert back to the gender presentation from before you transitioned, you're considered a traitor because, you know, you were never really trans and you potentially could be giving trans people a bad name by saying, this isn't the ultimate choice. This isn't, um, you know, you, you're saying that transition isn't the truth. This isn't the, the right answer for, for these people necessarily. And what was happening as far as your, like, 
romantic and sexual relationships at this point. Because obviously so much of this was almost sort of provoked by this strange interaction where you were like, I'm gay, that's really difficult, but this is what I am. And then you transition to become a man. Did that add another layer of sort of like confusion and overwhelm? It did. And to top it off too, I had this like hypersexual drive, Mm. um, because of the testosterone. It, um, it really makes you kind of, um, like blinded by your sexual intentions. (laughs) So (laughs) you are kind of like, uh, (laughs) you are kind of like a a dumb horny dude and you're just kind of like following your instincts. Um, I ended up um, having mostly relationships with trans women um, because in the environment with the people that I had surrounded myself with, um, they really pushed hard that trans women have the hardest time dating. You know, if you're going to date somebody, you, you know, you need to be dating trans women because they, they deserve it. And, um, it's, it's, it sounds crazy, but basically you were really pressured to date trans women exclusively in that environment. Um, I dated a few women, um, also, but, most of the women that I ended up dating, um, ended up transitioning themselves. <laughs> um, it was, it, and I hated it. it. It made me feel like I had this contagion, um, mm. because it was like any woman I surrounded myself with instantly would be like, Oh, you know, you really made me reflect on my issues and now I'm non-binary or now I'm trans too. And I was like, no, you know, in my mind thinking, no, this is not the right path for you. It's not even the right path for me. I hate this. Fuck. Yeah. It's also, it's really interesting, you know, like prior to all of this, when we're like fighting for gay rights, there's all this stuff about, you know, it's contagious or you're going to like influence someone to do it. And it's really kind of fucked up. Like when you look at, especially female to male, when you look at charts of like the um, likelihood that this occurs, like the spike is unbelievable. Um, And I think it was spoken about in dysphoric, like that a lot of the time one woman or one girl in a friend group decides that she's trans or non-binary and then all of the rest of her friends do the same. Um, did you experience, I mean, obviously you were just saying like, as far as the women you were dating, um, but it's, it sucks because it's like, you know, we don't to find our place within the, like, we want everyone to be happy and to be themselves, but also like, I think there might be something dangerous here. It just seems like to find the inroads in order to like where to say that and to whom and how it's like, everything can be shut down with, you know, you're transphobic or you're this or you're that. Um, and yet when you look at the numbers or the reality, it really does seem like people are just getting the idea from other people and deciding to transition. <laughs> well, and they keep sticking with this, like transgender people are a minority. They're only 1% of the population thing. And it's like, really not so much anymore. Like this has ballooned. This is such a huge thing. And, you know, we've got all these varying levels of transgender identity too. So Mm -hmm. we've got people who are, you know, not even physically transitioning, which I think is maybe a healthier choice in the long run, but they are still disassociating from their sex and they are still 
incorporating into their lives this belief that they can't possibly be a woman in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you think, you know, you, you can sometimes look at like people like uh, raised in super fundamentalist environments or people raised abroad, right? Like in India, as, as was discussed in the film so so often. And I think we tend to look at those things and we think like, oh, that's that's happening over there, right? Like that's not the mainstream. Like, yes, okay, fine. And I guess it's my belief, and I'm I'm curious to hear what you think, that in my mind these things are happening and they might be more obvious. They may not have come as far as we have come in the States where we sort of pretend as if, you know, everyone is accepted and everyone has equal rights. But I feel like perhaps, you know, what's happening uh, maybe more obviously in an environment that is extremely misogynistic or extremely homophobic is still happening in other environments. It just may not be as obvious. Like it's not different necessarily. It's just less severe. Well, and I think we've managed to flip the narrative around what we define as misogynist, right? So we're looking at movements like, you know, uh, like liberal feminism saying, you know, sex work is work and makeup is empowerment. And really what we've done is we've decided, okay, men are going to treat us this way no matter what we do, no matter how much pushback and how much liberation we actually achieve. They're still there and they're still fighting us at every corner. So instead of fighting anymore, we're tired, we're exhausted with this fight. Let's meet them where they are. Yeah. So when did you start to consider detransitioning? What was that process? That was a really rough time. Um, I So I had a number of health issues. Um, I ended up, um, my, I, I was on, again, I was, I was still on a very high dose of testosterone um, for, for what I understand is the normal range for people my age, height, body weight, et cetera. Um, and I only got that information through talking with other trans people. I could not get that information through my doctor. Um, But uh, so I actually ended up having kidney failure, the early stages of kidney failure and um, liver failure um, started as well. Um, I was completely jaundiced. Um, I was incredibly, incredibly sick. Uh, My doctor said that um, my primary care physician said that she uh, thought that I needed to be put on dialysis pretty much immediately. I got so sick. And at the time, I was not taking any prescriptions other than testosterone and I was eating very healthy. I exercised every day. I did not drink heavily. Um, there really were no other factors I could foresee um, other than the testosterone. So I thought, okay, maybe this is a factor. Maybe it isn't. Let's see. So I decided to eliminate the testosterone. I started by going on the gel, which is an extremely low dose Um And, uh, after being on the gel for a certain amount of time, my symptoms went away. Um, I got a lot better. Um, Mm -hmm. and I thought this is really working. This means I need to stop testosterone. So then I stopped the gel and I just went completely off. And it was only, I think over the span of like a month that I went from the injectable to the gel to nothing. Um, Mm. so it happened very quickly. I do not recommend people detransition that way. Um, doctors unfortunately are not very aware of how that process should go, but realistically speaking, it's a shock to your system to go through it that quickly. Um, 
but uh, so I initially decided to transition, detransition because of um, physical reasons. Um, Cause I was like, I can't keep doing this to my body. And once I did that, I started talking to my trans friends about it and they came at me really hard. And they basically told me I had never been trans and I got death threats. I got told to go and kill myself. Um, I, uh, uh, specifically, um, I knew a trans woman from the Trans Lifeline, which is a suicide hotline for trans people, and she messaged me and told me to go kill myself. Fuck. That kind of peaked me. That's kind of what yeah. peaked me, honestly, was I was like, wow, like just going off of hormones, not even telling these people, like, I'm going back to my birth sex, right? Like, to presenting as a woman. Like, yeah. just going off of the medication is what's driving people to treat me this way. What is wrong with this community? Right. So, um, and then I just was kind of like, well, I'm already off of the hormones. I'm already getting this treatment from people. I might as well just do things the way I want to do them and detransition socially, too. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck. Um, <laughs> so I assume during this time, like you lost all of your friends. Did they all sort of reject you and alienate you because of this decision? The majority of my friends did. Um, I was, um, I mean, some of it was, I was ex excommunicated by some people in the trans community, um, where they, uh, my best friend at the time was a trans woman. And so she, um, posted a, a group message telling everybody like to come beat, beat me up basically. And like that I was never trans and stuff. She spread all these rumors about me and that was a nightmare. Um, but then I had other friends that I also just kind of distanced myself from because I was mm -hmm. like, I don't want to get you involved in this. Honestly, like I don't, I want to be able to leave this in a good way, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and then I have some friends still who, um, were friends with me before most of them, um, have not identified as trans specifically. A lot of them are kind of like, I'm non-binary, but they, they haven't transitioned. They haven't delved as deep into the community as I did. Um, and those people, um, I can still like hang out with, um, we just like, do not talk about gender. We do not talk about trans stuff because they know I will go on a rant and I can like see their soul leaving their body every time. Like we have that conversation and they're like, not again. Like, we don't want to talk about this. You hate trans people. And I'm like, I don't though, because I was one yeah. and we need to talk about this. So we just, yeah. we kind of avoid the conversation to be honest. And how much did you start to feel like that the trans community was sort of like any kind of fundamentalist cult or religion. So <laughs> I, I've always been fascinated with cult dynamics ever since I was like a teenager um, because I grew up in basically a fundamentalist Christian cult scenario. Right. And um, so I've always kind of like regarded that information as important to me to like be able to process what I experienced and be able to get out of that mindset. Mm -hmm. And then as I sort of was detransitioning, the way people were treating me, I was like, you're treating me the same way I got treated when I left the church. This is a weird coincidence. This can't be, this can't mm -hmm. be cult behavior. And so I started analyzing it and it's like, 
oh shit, this is cult behavior. (laughs) Um, so it, um, and, and I mean, I have to be careful when I say that because people will take that and say like, you're exaggerating or you're just being an alarmist. And I, I need to be specific here. Like, you know, not every trans person is like promoting cults ideology, right? Like each trans person is in and of themselves an individual, but as a group dynamic, the way they are working in the U S at least. Um, and from what I see also in Canada and a lot of times in the UK, um, the way that they approach, uh, socializing people and getting them to join their group is very much how a cult manufactures more members. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how long, like, was there, what was the period of time from like actually fully deep transitioning? Right. So the point at which you feel like, okay, now I've reached like, it's not going to keep, I'm not going to keep changing. I've sort of detransitioned as much as I can. Or, or is it ongoing? I'm not really sure. I think it's kind of an ongoing process, to be honest. I mean, like, physically, yeah. I, I'm at a point where changes are done. Like, I, you know, things are not really going to change with me physically. You know, yeah, I might change my hair, but that's different. Right, right. <laughs> um, but uh, but kind of, like, realizing my identity um, and realizing I can be an individual with individual tastes and that doesn't have to be affected by my sex and my sex Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be affected by my personality. Right. Um, that's been kind of an ongoing process and something I still kind of deal with where I'm like, you know, um, I, I have always kind of dealt with the, the mindset of I'm not like the other girls. Right. And I hate that. I hate seeing that in other women, but I struggle with that myself where I'm like, you know, I, I like, you know, I, I have these personality traits. I'm not like other women. So am I actually a woman? And I still have to kind of, uh, remind myself occasionally, like, no, for one, you don't know all women, so you can't make that broad of a statement. But for two, you're still a woman because you have the anatomy of being female and you're an adult. And that's all it takes to be a woman. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more, too. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, so is that now sort of when you think about this and you think about, like, identifying as a woman, that it is tied to your body in a lot of ways and not necessarily the sort of culturally prescribed gender identity? Um, Yeah. And to be honest... um, this may not be great for for some people to hear who were really like anti-transition, but the one benefit of me transitioning is now I am a hairy woman with a deep voice and I have to live with that. Mm-hmm. And it's hard and it's frustrating as hell sometimes, but on the other side of it, it's made me realize like, oh my God, I'm still a woman even with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been accepted into women's spaces and I've been accepted as a lesbian and, you know, all these things. And it's because I am female. It is not because I dress a certain way or because I'm hairless or anything like that. It simply is because I'm female and knowing 
that has actually expanded the definition of woman for me so much that it really is breaking in my mind that gender box that was perpetuated by transgender ideology. Because again, you know, you go back and transgender ideology says that, you know, if I'm hairy, if I have facial hair, then I must be a man. But, um, it's, it's so, it's so weird to me to be like, no, I, I'm still a woman. Yeah. Was there a lot of like grief for you in recognizing that a lot of the changes that occurred through taking testosterone were not necessarily going to go away entirely? Yeah. Uh, there's, there's still grief over that, um, grief and anger. Um, because I, you know, I look back and there's so many like, you know, what ifs about if, if I had done things differently. Um, but I can't change it. And I have to just accept what my body is now and care for my body as it is. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to speak up about this? Because I can't, I can't imagine it was easy. Um, and I think what's, I mean, so many aspects of this are disturbing, but the fact that people who have gone through this process transitioned and then decide to detransition, who are like ostracized by all of their community, who are totally silenced by the culture at large. It's like we're doing nothing but just packing on the trauma to those people. Um, And I'm, do you feel like part of you speaking out was almost like to fight back against that? Um, And like, or was that just like a terrifying process to to say like okay I'm gonna like actually be public with this and talk about it you know despite these issues that are surrounding me I mean initially I spoke out um because I wanted to speak to transgender people initially I really wanted to bridge the gap and I wanted to start dialogue about transgender health because I Mm -hmm. feel like the whole process of transition involving cross-sex hormones. I mean, now we've got the, uh, you know, a massed amount of kids going on puberty blockers and then surgeries. I felt like we weren't talking about the health risks. We weren't talking about, okay, yeah, this might feel good in the moment, but where are you going to be 30 years from now? And you're being told and, you know, encouraged to not think about living 30 years from now. You're told you're going to kill yourself if you don't get this drug. So you're not going to be around much longer anyway. You might as well try it. That's such a short-lived perspective. We are not planning for the future for transgender individuals in terms of health, let alone mental health. And so I really initially wanted to reach out to trans people and say, you need better health care. And that's not getting hormones quicker. It's not getting surgery quicker. It's really examining the long-term effects of these things. And then I started getting feedback, um, a lot of negative feedback from trans people, but then I also got positive feedback and I started getting um, connected with other detransitioners who were like, yeah, we've been talking about this too. Like, come join us. And I was like, Mm. oh, dang, I found my people. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Do you feel like, I mean, and I'm not sure what the numbers are, but do you do you feel like there's going to be like sort of some sort of like onslaught of so many women, especially? And I, and I wanted to say too, like we're talking a lot about women in this case. And I feel like I'm much, I'm interested in this specifically 
well, one, because I'm a woman, but I think also because the numbers are increasing so much more frequently than they are for men who are transitioning. Um, and that's sort of concerning in a way because it's not necessarily following like the regular trajectory. So like what's going to happen in a year, two years, five years, 10 years from now when there are so many of you, you know, like, is that as messed up as that is? I wonder if that might be the wake up call that like the number of people who are detransitioning becomes too big to silence in a way. I mean, I think for those who are outside or on the peripheral of the trans community, it will definitely be a wake up call. I think that they're, I mean, we're already seeing such a huge rise. I mean, you know, you look at social media any day of the week and there's just a ton of young women on there yeah. talking about detransitioning, um, which I'm, I'm happy that they're speaking out, but it also makes me incredibly sad because, um, you know, they're still kids and I'm not trying to be condescending, but like, honestly, yeah. like most of them are like teens or in their early twenties. And it's like, God, like you've already been through this. Like I was, I was an adult when I went through it and I was still very naive and still very young and vulnerable, but like, at least like I had had my youth, you know, and they're, they've sacrificed their youth to this. Um, so I do think we are going to see a rise to that. And I do think it's going to have an impact. I think though, unfortunately that in the trans community, um, amongst those who are most indoctrinated and believing that whole ideology, they are going to perpetuate the notion that detransitioners were never really trans to begin with, which, okay, we're going with self-ID here where I can announce myself any gender I want and instantly I am that gender and I am the sex that aligns with that gender. Um, right. So it's a, you know... Pick, pick, pick which one it is, but um, right. they, uh, they, they've they maintained this argument for so long that detransitioners were never really trans, no matter how long we went through the process, no matter what state of transition we went through. So I do think they're going to keep that up. Um, and I actually think we are going to see more men detransition too. I just think that they are going to detransition later on in life. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's so ridiculous, too, because if we have this huge narrative around all of these people who are detransitioning were never really trans, like, doesn't that then make us want to talk about then why? <laughs> like, why did all these non-trans people transition and mm -hmm. how did they get the medication in order to do so? Right. Like, that yep. doesn't really make a lot of sense either. Like, why wouldn't we want to talk then about tightening the restrictions or making it slightly more difficult to transition if there's so many people who are not trans, but who are trans. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very flawed argument. And, um, unfortunately the response you usually get when you try to battle that argument with logic is you're transphobe. You don't want trans people to live their best life. Um, and, and it's frustrating. And I, I'm of the persuasion where I do believe that transition might help a very few people with some of their mental health issues, um, mm -hmm. but I, I think that as it stands today, um, it's just such an open, easy process. It's marketed to anyone and everyone who's ever experienced misogyny and any kind of mental health issue. And, um, so making it even easier to get seems counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. And do you think, I mean, I'm, 
I studied gender and sexuality in college, and so I got, and in that education, a very cross-cultural perspective about gender identity and sexual orientation, both being, you know, constructed by the culture, socially constructed in some way. So not to say that we're making it up that women sleep with women or men sleep with men, but the way, obviously, that we defined this or categorized it, right, the fact that we call it gay, right? Like, we can't call Oscar Wilde gay. Like, that term didn't exist in the way that it exists now, right? So we we sort of put on this, like, broader identity into an action or, like, a, a sexual choice. Um, do you feel like, you know, like, I think the big sort of elephant in the room question is, like, is it real? Like, is being transgender actually a real thing? Or is it always a symptom, like you said, of a mental health issue, right? Like, I think some people can transition and it helps their mental health issue, which is not necessarily saying people are transitioning because they're actually transgender from birth. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, that's my perspective. And it's debated even amongst detransitioners, you know, like we're, we're all individuals too. So we all have our own perspective on this issue. Um, mm -hmm. And personally, um, yeah, I, I don't really believe, I, I don't believe in sexed brains. I don't believe that anyone is born in the wrong body. I do think that psychological issues may occur around um, connecting brain and body so that we experience discomfort in our bodies for various mm -hmm. reasons. Usually it's related to some sort of trauma. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not wholly convinced that anyone is actually you know, transgender in the sense of, you know, a female in a male's body, um, in, in that conventional sense, I don't think that that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I sort of was like writing in my journal recently about like, so what happens to people who are transgender or, and more, maybe even more specifically non-binary, like, let's say you move to another culture where the whole way that gender is categorized and defined is different. It's like, who are you? You know, yeah. like, I don't think we necessarily think about the broader context and how many variations of woman or man or, you know, there there are so many options. And we just sort of like, especially in America, we have such blinders on to this sort of thing. Like, we don't think anything else exists. Um, but yeah, I think it's like, if I don't know, it's it's incredibly frustrating to me because I really do, like you said, think that this movement is further, you know, sexing the population or like putting them into these two boxes, which will be ultimately harmful and not helpful in the way that we want it to be. <laughs> yeah. Um so what do you feel now? I mean, you know, we talk about how so many more people are coming out who have detransitioned, and I see this just by going to YouTube, although I feel like if you don't look for it, you don't find it. And I and in the mainstream, I feel like we're still in a place of trying to promote being tr being trans and trying, the, you know, the bathroom thing. Like, there's all this stuff in the mainstream media and social justice movements that is trying to be, you know, affirming to people who have transitioned. Do you feel sometimes like you're, like, screaming into a void? <laughs> like, just this incredible, like, powerlessness around what's going on publicly? Yeah, and um, 
I, I feel like I'm consistently put in a place where I have to choose a side, which is really frustrating because I, I have a lot of empathy for people in the trans community. I really do. I it never sounds like that on Twitter, but I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, like I, I want there to be better things for them. Um, but they, uh, the, the movements that they are sitting behind, I don't really agree with. And then when I say I don't agree with them, then I sort of get uplifted by, um, you know, like radical feminists and things like that. And then I feel like I'm sort of being played to their, their arguments. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Detransitioners, we've got our own agenda. Like, I feel like we are, we, we can have overlap. And like a lot of detransitioners do identify as radical feminists and they are affiliated with that. Um, some detransitioners also are very pro trans and on that side of things. But most detransitioners, I feel like we have our own issues that we're trying to push. And that's when it really feels like we're screaming into the void where it's like, okay, if this isn't uplifting your agenda or your agenda, you don't care. You're not listening. Um, you know, when we start talking about like, we need better detransition healthcare. We need better services to aid people who are coming out of the process of being trans. Um, it doesn't really get talked about that much and it's really unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I find it really problematic that within all of these sort of identitarian movements that like one, if you are a part of that group, right, if you are transgender or if you're black or if you're gay or whatever, then you automatically have the right to speak at any time. But if you're not, I mean, this is what I've struggled with a lot, too. It's like because, like, on the one hand, I had some issues with the Me Too movement. Like, yes, on the one hand, this is great. We should be speaking up against this. But on the other hand, believe all women all the time, no matter what, didn't make any sense to me, you know? Um, and, and But yet I only felt comfortable because I'm a woman speaking to that issue. But it's so difficult to, like, put myself into the race conversation because it's like you have no right to even have an opinion. And if you do, that disagrees with, like, the mainstream here, you're racist or you're transphobic or... Um, and I think that's partially why I'm so grateful that people who have detransitioned are speaking about out about this, which is, you know, it's unfortunate that we're not all able to, but I sort of get it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's very hard to have conversations these days. <laughs> um, and yeah. Um, have you, you know, after being in that documentary, what was that process like, by the way, was that kind of like, how did you, how did they find you or how, how were you one of the people that was interviewed for it? I don't remember how V found mm -hmm. me. Um, she is amazing. Like she is yeah. just so much fun to talk to. Um, that was one of my best experiences doing an interview, honestly, was, um, just talking with her because we would, um, we actually started like video chatting before she interviewed me for the film. And mm -hmm. we just spent like hours just talking about feminism and talking about what it's like growing up as a woman, um, or growing up as a girl into a woman under oppressive yeah. circumstances and things and comparing like her cultural experiences with mine here in the U S and, yeah. um, so it was a really great process. Um, 
but it's always it's always nerve wracking to do an interview, frankly, because it, you know I can only express things from my own perspective and from my experiences. And there's always going to be one person who's like, you can't speak for all detransitioners or you can't speak for trans experiences. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not trying to do that. <laughs> yeah. But you could when you were identified as trans. I mean, like yeah. that's what's like once you decide actually no, it's like you relinquish your or forced to relinquish your like permission slip card or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me. I know I've said, like, thank you and applauded you a million times, but I could do it even more. I just think, you know, for for those of us, like, I think it is legitimately very, very difficult for so many people to talk out, uh, speak out about these things because they will lose their job or they will be canceled in a way where it's going to be, like, very detrimental to their entire lives. And so I, I really encourage those of us who can speak out about it to please do so, um, even though it's scary, because ultimately we'll survive um, and, you know, we'll help other people in the process. So um, I really, uh, yeah, think you're incredibly brave and courageous to do this and um, really appreciate you spending this time with me as well. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and Honestly, like I, I'm very fortunate to be in a position where I'm not going to lose my job. I'm not going to lose my livelihood due to speaking out. So I might as well. Right. So can you tell people where they can find you on Twitter or wherever else? And then I also ask every guest that I have on the podcast if they could recommend like one or two books that were really instrumental or influential to you in your life. What oh, might it be? <laughs> I should have known about this beforehand. I have to remember the title. Um, yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. Um, my handle is at habitually femme, um, F-E-M-M-E. Um, it is. I'm not super femme anymore, but um, it's just kind of a play on it. Um, mm -hmm. Let me find the book, the name of the book, because um, it really did help me a lot. Okay, so I'm not finding the book that I look, am looking for, but um, one book that has helped me for sure is um, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's a very popular one, um, but uh, just the way that they, um, the, the way it talks about uh, trauma and how we m we've manifested trauma throughout our lives um, and how it impacts our day to day is really important. Um, and I think that the more detransitioners that we see in the world, the more we need to care for them and offer them resources to care for the trauma that they've experienced. Because not only have a lot of detransitioners experienced a history of abuse and trauma, but also going through the process of transition and detransitioning is in and of itself a trauma. Yeah. Well, thank you. Also, if you do think of the book and you want to send it to me after, I can put it in the show notes. So. Okay, cool. Yeah, I will. <laughs> I will write it down. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Rachel. This was a great conversation to have. Yeah, thank you, Anya. I really appreciate it.
Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to all of that conversation. Um, please go give Rachel a follow, send her a note, and say that you really enjoyed hearing her on the podcast. I'm sure she would love to hear that. Uh, if you would like to support this podcast financially, please go to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Uh, this is where you can help me keep the podcast ad-free and keep the podcast going because there's no other way to make money on podcasts, um, and it definitely requires some work and some effort. Uh, and also, plus, if you donate, uh, it's about 5 or $10 a month, depending which tier you select, you get access to so many other people like you who listen to the podcast. You can communicate with them in our Discord server. We do workshops, book clubs. We have playlists, lots of ways to connect if you're feeling lonely feeling like you need a community there is one waiting for you and we'd love to have you patreon.com slash Anya Kotz um, I'm gonna play you out today with things are gonna get easier by low motion disco I love this uh cover of the song and I hope you do too and uh things are gonna get easier you guys one way or another thank you all for being here as always sending you all love and catch you next time